We don't get to review many comedies on this show, and the way cultures joke about war is just as illuminating as the more harrowing dramatic treatments. Satire is a tool that groups of humans use to take the air out of their fears. And in ancient times, the court jester could make fun of the king without fear of murderous reprisals. He might visit on a count or a duke making the same comment. Similarly, me and Ben are here to primarily lighten the mood of an otherwise dour history lesson that John would met out if he had his way. Peter Sellers stars in today's darkly comedic send-up of post-war international nuclear tension, and he plays most of the roles. Oh no! Did three coconuts fall on your three hosts' heads? Did they forget that they already reviewed Dr. Strangelove? Have they already watched all of the war movies and now they have to rinse and repeat? Calm yourself. Today's film actually predates Strangelove by five years and comes very early in Peter Sellers' film career. While nuclear doomsday is an element of the story, the parody is less preoccupied with that than the ideas behind the Marshall Plan and other post-war aid regimes pursued by the United States to rebuild Western Europe and Japan. If you could get billions of dollars for losing a war to the United States, then why not try to pick a fight with them? This is a plan that is so dumb that it just might work. The fictional micronation of Grand Fenwick, economically devastated by the crashing value of the crappy wine that is their primary export, sends one of the half-dozen Peter Sellerses to the U.S. ahead of an army of about a dozen longbowmen. They stumble about in the streets of Manhattan, deserted due to a citywide bomb drill, where they capture a superweapon and return to Fenwick victorious. Winning the war is exactly what they hope not to do and wielding a nuclear deterrent is above the pay grade of the entire country. The humor of the late 50s people, men of Fenwick, were you to hear the name of Grand Fenwick, do your hearts not swell with pride? Today on Friendly Fire, the mouse that roared. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast, the host of which simply must get a hold of some of those malted milk machines, not to mention those hot dogs. I'm Ben Harrison. Hot dog. I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> and I'm John Roderick. That's like the key to an impression, right? Putting the emphasis on somewhere unexpected. Yeah. Hot Oh yeah, I forgot that he dog. I forgot that hot dog was two words in that. I I should really retake that, but mm. I lack the professionalism. What the fuck is a malted milk machine, John? Oh, uh, <laughs> I think it's, tell us about the history of that. Just a milkshake oh, machine that they put malted powder in. I don't think malteds had their own okay. machine. I I had it in my head that it was a soft serve thing, but soft serve wasn't a thing for another couple of decades, right? Oh, I think soft serve was a, was a thing too, but. No, I think this is just the people of uh, Wakanda don't know about <laughs> how milkshakes work. Yeah, I did really like that about this movie. The uh, the Fenwickians mm-hmm. always like cross their arms in front of their chests. Fenwick forever. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe this movie. This this uh, it's an antecedent to Strange Love, isn't it? Really it really is in so many crazy ways. 
it's uh, it's sellers doing a bunch of bunch of characters. It's a bu- it's a lot of like nuclear farce. Yeah, so Cold War satire. Yeah. What what if what if you had a clumps movie that had to do with with war and <laughs> nuclear war specifically? <laughs> really changes the game. Peter Sellers was the first clumper, right? He was the guy that modernized <laughs> clumping. You guys are yeah. making a reference to a series of clump movies that I never saw and can barely even pull out of the fog enough to know that it starred... Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. But, like, the people, great Eddie Murphy. people lost their fucking minds when he was clumping, but Sellers was yeah. the first, right? Or the best. Uh-huh. Which is it? I mean, I, th- I think that the high watermark of that is The Fatty's Fart 2, starring Jack Black. Mm. Mm. You won't see Peter Sellers doing fart humor. Oh, sure. I don't know about that. Not in this movie. Not in this movie, though. This is also kind of his his like screen debut in the U.S. He wasn't really a star yet. It's crazy to imagine a time when, if you think about Strange Love, right? It's not a real knee slapper. I mean, they're like funny, funny <laughs> bits, but I don't know. Those two planes fucking at the beginning is pretty funny. The story is that Slim Pickens didn't know it was a comedy. Isn't that, didn't we talk right. about that, right? I mean, yeah. so if you can be in a film, if you can be in a, in a comedy and not realize it's a comedy. Right. Uh, that's like, <laughs> but this movie clearly is is both a farce, but also not super duper funny. And it takes us back to a time when <laughs> senses of humor were different. Right? This right. movie was a yeah. hit. A hit in its time. The, the bar for comedy was pretty low. Well, just different. I don't think that they were doing the the like how many laughs per minute math that a lot of modern comedy directors do, like screening it for audiences and trying to tighten up the intervals between laughter. Uh, it's a different. Like, it's a. Com- it doesn't feel mathematical. It's a completely different equation, right? They're not going for yeah. laughs at all. There's not a single moment, or you know, maybe there's five moments in the film where the, where where the intention was to get an audience to go like, ha ha ha, that's ridiculous, but it's meant to make you feel like you are on the inside of a of a of a big joke. Yeah, it seems like in a modern comedy you get you get either broad or clever, and in this film they kind of meet in a specific way, a, a way specific to its time. It also seems really hard to make like contemporary geopolitics funny. And it's so amazing to think that like when the risks of geopolitics seem to be like imminent nuclear destruction at all times in the Cold War, that a lot of attempts were made to kind of like send that up. I mean, a lot of attempts on the part of, I guess, what what would be considered the intellectual left, right? This type of humor was not considered funny by the saber rattlers and the you know the cold war hawks it would have been considered um you know seditious almost but like the the whole premise of the film requires it's all based on a marshall plan joke right i mean if you're (laughs) like the audience is is uh is like rolling in the aisles about american post-war uh economic rehabilitation of conquered nations like it's it's sort of it's very New Yorker. That expectation kind of changed 10 years later after Vietnam, right? Like I wonder if there was an appetite for this kind of comedy. I mean, the the this is basically MASH, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the what what changed between here because MASH isn't really laugh out loud either. What changed was that MASH became If you're Ben, it's Oh, you're going to get letters. <laughs> the sound of cringes. But, you know, MASH just uh just like 
turned up the vulgarity because the era right. had become more vulgar. But the sense of humor and the kind of uh, the send up is similar family. The barrel would have fallen fallen apart and revealed Gene Seberg's nudity if this was MASH, right? Oh, yeah. I, I just want to hear you say Gene Seberg's nudity over and over. That's its own <laughs> form of pornography. Hey, guys, guess what? You know director Carl Foreman, famously of The Key and Bridge on the River Kwai? Yeah. We love that guy. Executive producer of this film. Wait a minute. Huh. Yeah. Uh, the version I watched has his credit as a high road production, which was his production company. And what I read was that he did not think that the dailies were funny or good when the movie was in production. And to the extent that the director stopped going to the daily screenings because he was getting such a such a razzing from the producers that he was blowing it. But Oof. then when they uh, when they got the film together and screened it, uh, you know, had some some previews in New York and it burned the house down. Foreman had all of the prints recalled and changed his credit from a high road production to a Carl Foreman production. But uh, I guess I guess this is a surviving high road production print that uh, that they have on Amazon. Interesting. That's yeah. got to be terrifying when you think you have an idea of how the comedy is going to play, and then you go to those dailies and it's just dying. It's dying every day. Like the the creeping <laughs> dread that you must feel when your name is on it. You know. I mean, it's not. You you don't get the feeling that it's a huge budget production. Yeah. There's no like cast of thousands of extras or it, it feels super stage play they didn't have the budget to go to new york <laughs> no, that's right <laughs> they create new york with like uh what like a fence around hyde park or something some corner of they're at speaker's corner oh. <laughs> yeah there's a uh, a few shots that look like kind of an early green screen effect or something and at least one shot of like empty, like, like there's some shots of empty New York that are clearly just shot like early in the morning when nobody's around, but a couple that are just photographs that they're playing for live footage. <laughs> the good. film doesn't suffer for that. Like the tone of it makes you less apt to scrutinize uh, production choices in any way. In fact, I was surprised at the shots where the Queen Elizabeth II and the little tugboat were actually interacting in, yeah. in the water. I, 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 I would have been fine if that had been a green screen. And right. in fact, it was yeah. like, wow. The most high budget part of the movie, it seemed like. <laughs> yeah, how did they get the, you know, exactly. They had the, the, the QE2 was on its way and they were like, we're just going to run our boat in there real fast if that's cool. <laughs> Gentlemen, you made me drop a stitch. How old do you have to be to get this kind of comedy? Because I, like, when I was little, I popped in a Pink Panther VHS cassette at a friend of my parents' house thinking that it was going to be a cartoon. Right. And it was the most deeply disappointing movie experience of my life when it was just <laughs> an old guy making weird faces in a trench coat. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be of a certain age or sophistication to get Peter Sellers, right? It, I liked the Pink Panther movies when I was a kid. That checks out. <laughs> Benjamin R. Harrison, the oldest living boy in New York. I well, I I think I was disabused of the idea that it was going to be a cartoon by my my father before we watched it. But. He would often spoil the movie before starting it for you. I was excited that it was going to be about insulation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the, the Pink Panther movies were a part of my childhood. Comedies where there's a there's some kind of crime or heist at the center of it, and there's a bumbling. I mean, they're they're the forefathers, spiritual forefathers of Home Alone, right? Um, but as time went on, like Home Alone was all just uh, like testicle kicks and people getting hurt, <laughs> right? I mean, it, it's like yeah. it's like uh, ouch comedy. Yeah, you know those dailies are going to be funny every day, right? And it's again an amping up of the vulgarity over time, so that by the by the time we get to the present day, like if if somebody doesn't get hit in the balls by the first thirty seconds, it's not a it's not a comedy. Comedy is very testicular right now. Right. Melissa McCarthy shitting in a sink is is one of the main jokes. The only reason that scene isn't as funny as it could be is because of the lack of testicles. Yeah, that's yeah. right. If she had had if she had had bigger balls. If she dropped a sack into that sink before taking a dump into it. It's a hell of a combination. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to punch up Melissa McCarthy's work, which is excellent. Yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe if maybe if there had been a guy in the foreground getting his balls kicked, or you know, just something. <laughs> if you guys were the producers on that film, you would have been sitting watching those dailies. Everyone else is cracking up, and you're like, I don't know. Yeah, not enough testicles. Missing a couple of things. <laughs> but it was. But this evolution of of comedy uh, al- along these lines, right? Like like Herbie the Love Bug is a similar kind of. I mean, there's a there's a there's a caper at the center of it. Um, are you, uh, Adam's looking at me like he's never seen Herbie the Love Bug. No, have I you have. been? Have you seen Herbie the Love Bug? I was Bug? thinking about how unfunny I found that movie do when you, I was a do kid. Do you even know what Herbie the Love Bug is, Ben? Uh, Lindsay Lohan film. Oh, boy. Ben only knows it as its remake. <laughs> this ain't Herbie the Love Bug. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelieves. Basically, any movie with Bill Bixby in it. Now I'm not even talking to you guys. I'm talking directly to our audience because people in, in the audience are like, yes, Bill Bigsby, thank you. I get the references. Yeah, maybe just the olds that email you directly. <laughs> Slim Pickens is actually in the Apple Dumpling Gang. I get a Bill Bixby reference. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> I'm not an idiot for that reason, I should say. But yeah, movies that you would, but by a contemporary standard, you would say, this is not a comedy. What is this? I mean, it's there are ridiculous things in it, but... I mean, Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Right? None of these senses of humor even survive to the day. Right. It's been completely supplanted by stand-up. Stand-up is what did it. Using stand-up comedians in movies and having movies be vehicles for stand-up comedians rather than hmm. comedic actors. I mean, I think that comes back to joke density, right? Like the object of a stand-up on stage is to get you laughing as much as possible and some of them achieve that through like long-form storytelling but just as often it's just it's just joke 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 and i think that that's made its way into other forms of comedy um with the notable exception being podcasts that involve me and adam Right, right. There's a sort of joke anti-density. There's, a, there's certainly long, <laughs> and it's hard for people to understand why other people think it's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really felt like this movie had a, a '60s feel to it, and I, I put it in having not looked at the, at the date it was made, but it's a, uh, it's 1959. And I wondered what that, I mean, like, I guess like the lady's haircut maybe felt 60s to me. Is that like a, is that something that you can 
pull apart, John, like having been born slightly closer to <laughs> this time? I think the 1959, 1958-59 are really part of the 60s. And um, just as 1979 is part of the 80s, right? I mean, 19... Uh, the 90s didn't really start until 1991. Insult them all, John. <laughs> all of them. Scorch the earth. But by by the by the very late 50s, we were we were into the the beginnings of this kind of Kennedy Camelot. Uh, this is your Mad Men thing, right? When uh, what what made Mad Men so popular was that it it uh, it had that high style, and the Mad Men started in the late 50s too. But I think I think an, uh, a thing that we miss through the mists of time is how much anti-establishment feeling there was during the fifties. We think of it because it was because the the boomer generation cast the fifties as an era of total conformity, and the fifties, you know, kind of prided itself on on uniformity like new housing developments the company man you know all these ideas that um that certainly were true but but for the 60s to have been this time of rebellion it needed to describe the 50s as a place where there was uh where there was no no rebellion or no um everybody was just walking in in lockstep and it's not true right the 50s were there there was an uh, you know, a, a, a real smart set of intellectuals and satirists and nonconformists that made up a sort of Manhattan, San Francisco scene of, um, you know, the New Yorker magazine is a great example. I mean, that was, if you read New Yorker articles from the mid fifties, they are smart and, and read with a real modern sensibility. They're super critical of, the administration and you know they're they're in the same voice you'd recognize uh except more erudite and right uh, do they did they still have like super detached and aloof observations about goings on about town and stuff like that yeah, absolutely i mean you know just <laughs> just uh the 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 cartoons in the new yorker then are just as hard to parse <laughs> so so i think but it's not ben you're not um you're not wrong to look back at the 50s and go what they you know because because we characterize it now as like poodle skirts and dumb patriarchal capitalist fear fear time unless we're talking about Elvis in which case then we switch right. gears and it all it's we're, we're talking about something different but like mainstream culture was this like cold war bomb shelter thing but it wasn't there's there's so much push and pull with the 50s now like different you know different groups trying to apply their own narrative to what it what it meant and what it was and that's exactly what it is it, it really gets confusing from the perspective of somebody who's born in 1983 yeah the the 50s have have for a long time been a football and depending on what america you wanted to be mad at uh, <laughs> there was definitely that america in the 50s who do you think is laughing most uh, in this film? Like, is this is this a film made for America to laugh at itself, or is this made for people in Europe to laugh at America? No, it's a hundred percent for an American audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what's uh, that's what's flattering about it for an American audience is uh, that you can go to it and be able to laugh at 
at our folly. Right. You're in on the joke. Yeah. Men from Mars. I saw them. Men from Mars. My wife and I were talking a lot about how, how Fenwick as a country is like totally unindustrialized. And it's amazing to think of a a place in Western Europe that might not have been, but, and, and I, I, I mean, I get, you know, they have like one car and it's the duchesses or whatever, but you know, the people are still wearing super traditional clothing. Like it's a time I think that really existed in Europe, like post-war, but like parts of, of Europe that were like pretty far from the major cities that were still super old school in their, in their life ways. It's a it's a good observation, and it's it would be impossible for us to sit here and and recall a time when Europe was considered by Americans a backwater, right. where things were cheap, and the people were unsophisticated. But that really was, in a lot of senses, the case, and the case until not that long ago. We think now of Europe as this hyper-industrialized, super-modern. Like more modern than us in a lot of ways. Right, but but even more when. More advanced than us in a lot of ways. Even when I went to Europe for the first time as a student in 1989, part of the reason that you went to Europe to vacation was that it was cheap. I mean, I, I went to Spain and it was like, oh my God, you know, you know, you can buy a sandwich for 100 pesetas. That's like a dollar. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think like film production in the UK in the post-war period was much cheaper than film production in the United States. Like, it's part of why this was shot there. Yeah, it was true all the way into the eighties. Um, and and in fact, if you if you go to parts of Romania or Ukraine now, people are wearing traditional garb and living in very uh, tradition, you know, traditional sort of. Lives. Hardly any of them were wearing chainmail. Oh uh, well, yeah, that's right. Although uh, there was a chainmail sweater I saw, a right. couple of sweaters that looked like chainmail uh, sweater vests. Yeah. Mostly, mostly what I see when I go to Europe is guys wearing three-quarter length jeans. <laughs> well, sure, but you're just visiting Paris. Ben, you'd have to have great calves to understand, and but you just don't. <laughs> I have great calves. You've got shit calves, and you know it. You, you have no idea. Ben's very handsome. I would look. I would look at pictures of Ben in his underpants. That's my lock screen on my phone, John. No one likes Ben more than I do. Actually, the, my lock screen on my phone is just uh, Ben's calves. Nice horseshoe shape. You know, Ben's in his yeah. his early thirties, but he is he's rocking a dad bod, and dad bod <laughs> is what's what's hip now, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I'm self consciously rocking the dad bud. I I I chose this for myself. But that's a that's another example of how this film is is so located in its time. I mean, to think that the Duchy of Grand Fenwick is funny requires that you think that Europe is hilarious in general. <laughs> right. Right. That I mean, because what what the Duchy of Grand Fenwick is some kind of like. Liechtenstein, except where people, it's like some combination of Liechtenstein and Gibraltar where they still speak English because of some knights, some British knight that, that took over the 20 square miles. And the Duchess right. herself is like a, a fucking clown. Like if you were to imagine what like 
matriarchal European leadership is and some jerkwater <laughs> country out there. Like that's her. Although she's she's pretty wise. Her de- her her decision to like let's just let's just wait and see how this plays out. I mean, it's infuriating, but in fact, it kind of ends up. She's not making a lot of wrong moves. No, that's right. She's, right. she's got she's got the wisdom of hereditary. Oh, that's the other thing. The, the, the all the jokes at the beginning are like he's the hereditary commander yeah. of the army, and he's this you know complete buffoon. Yeah. Um, the idea of hereditary positions as opposed to our American kind of uh, sense that everybody you know well, the, we're we're a meritocracy. I mean, all of all, yeah, right. All that stuff, uh, all that stuff was played for laughs, and yeah. it just goes right over our heads or right over our, right past us, right? That little joke, like I was like, wow, I could really see the uh, see the advantages of uh, of hereditary political power. <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, Mm -hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah! I have a uh, a pedantic quibble from uh, somebody on the internet about uh, the size of Grand Fenwick. Mm. Uh, the narrator says at the beginning that Grand Fenwick, sized at 15 and three quarter square miles, is the smallest country in the world. Whoa. Monaco and the Vatican are much smaller. Poof. So small, in fact, that even put together, they are still much smaller than Grand Fenwick. Monaco itself is approximately one square mile. Even smaller is the Vatican, whose area is measured in mere acreage. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know how they—I uh, don't know how they got that wrong. Didn't they have Wikipedia? They should have known. They should have known. Maybe they were assuming that that their American audience didn't know. What, what's what's interesting is right the the whole setup to this movie is that Grand Fenwick has one export, which is a kind of wine that everything else they do is ridiculous, but this wine yeah. is like halfway decent. And then some American, some crass Americans from California duplicate the wine and sell it for cheaper. Like it's a that's a joke at the expense of both Europe and America. Yeah, um, right and. I mean, I watched it and just was like, oh, yeah, I get it. Shrug. <laughs> but but then I think... 
that was like a new idea. Yeah, the joke would have landed. I love the cynicism of the idea that the wine isn't even that good. It isn't yeah. even good enough to copy, and yet we did it anyway, yeah, just because right. we could. Yeah, it's just a shabby wine, but yeah. it's like a joke that relies on, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a hit at the California wine industry <laughs> of the 50s. <laughs> Right, or, but also of American capitalism. I mean, it's if you sat and wrote a film paper about it, you could make this movie. Uh, you could make it sound funnier than it is, I mm. guess, because it's because there's a, it's it's packed. It's packed with little jokes and little references. Wry little references. Little wry references. I was just gonna say that. You were just gonna say wry references. Like it's it's. It's wry and not funny to the degree that there's a distinction between those two. Peter Sellers mugs a lot in his movies. Peter Sellers, I think, famously was a broken man. And I, we, we may have talked about this on the Strange Love episode, but he at one point said that if he's not in character, uh, inhabiting a role, he felt like he had no... There was no Peter Sellers. Mm. He had no character of his own. It was just, he was just an actor. And, you know, he was saying this as a, as a broken alcoholic who had, who had destroyed every relationship he ever touched. But, but he really did, I think, believe it. But there, there seems to be an effect that he has on the films that he's in where he is so committed to the idea of his characters that it almost like unintentionally diminishes everything else around him or his character. Right. And it's not like he made Dr. Strangelove a bad movie or anything, but I think in this film it's especially apparent that uh, his commitment to what he's doing makes people like Gene Seberg's character lesser than, or all other peripheral characters lesser than, or the comedy maybe doesn't hit as hard if he's not directly involved. Something that really blew my mind uh, when I was reading about this movie is that his first take was almost always his best take, and Gene Seberg was doing up to 20 takes on some of her lines. And the idea that like you you shoot his side and then you turn the camera around and shoot her side, and and it's that radically different how many how many times you roll camera on a on a take is like it is so mind boggling that they would be that out of sync with each other. You're giving Sellers a lot of time to drink if you're uh, taking your 20 takes, Gene. <laughs> well, and Gene Seberg <laughs> felt like she was kind of in another movie. I mean, Adam, I agree with you. Anytime there was a supporting character interacting with Peter Sellers, I, I, I almost felt like, well, why didn't they just get Peter Sellers to play that role too? Because right. everybody Why else, wasn't he the German scientist? Yeah, right. Everybody else in this movie is just kind of like it's weird because no one sucks in this movie, but it's the seller's effect. Yeah, right. They're just standing there holding holding up the scenery. Yeah, while he waltzes through, and he's not he's not campy. No, he's playing very close. And, yeah, and 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 tight. Gene Seberg went on to become like a super famous intellectual actress. She was like Godard's muse in the 60s and became like a, I mean, she was a famous actress in her own right. And this was one of her first movies, if not, if not her first. Yeah, I think this is her third, third movie. Film credit. Yeah. She's probably the most exaggerated 
character in the film. And I think also playing a, um, a sort of character that in the fifties would have been recognized and is, is recognizable now, but like the, I mean, she's an, she is a young independent woman at a time when she's the, she's the only actual woman in this film, right? Oh, I guess, no, there are, there are lots of Fenwickian wenches. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's a whole wench sub, sub, uh, category toward the end of the film. Right. But she's like, you know, the short haired girl, uh, with a lot of moxie. Yeah. She kind of has a uh, Janet Lee properties about her. Janet Lee properties. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get in on the ground floor, Adam, <laughs> uh, the thing is, I want to work with my friends and family. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you want all your inventory to be in your garage. Right. Since when have there been sticky germs? Uh, yeah, this film predates Psycho in a way. And I wonder to what degree like uh, Gene Seberg informed uh, Janet Lee's look and feel. Or if that was just purely a 1959-1960 look and sensibility to a person. Because we've seen a lot of films set in the 40s and early 50s and then later on in the 60s. But I feel like Gene Seberg's pixie haircut might have been... Uh, pretty trend-setting right well yes and twiggy the model famously had this sort of short blonde hair look but that was later that was five six years later in the 60s mia farrow also had that look and married frank sinatra in 64 so it's a very mid-60s look but i think it was maybe a downtown um capri pants Hipster showing off them calves, yeah, like a New York vibe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, that you know, I think it was during a time when a haircut could communicate a lot about you, sophisticated in a certain way, yeah. That really goes unexamined in this film, though. When you get the uh, the love that Tully feels for her and the women that Tully is used to being around, the the beer stube girls or whatever. Like, he, there is no comparison made between the two. She's just kind of fish out of watery. Yeah, she's a UFO. Yeah. I really got Mia Farrow vibes for sure. Um, the fact that he plants a kiss on her and then she's she's totally head over heels for him. Yeah, he turns her <laughs> mid-kiss. A, yeah, yeah you, you, you can actually see it on her face. She, she goes from get your fucking hands off me to I love you. I love you. Over right? the course of the kiss. Instantaneously. That's when yeah. the film turns into science fiction, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> this, so this is a thing that we are, we are interrogating culturally now that it's weird that we're interrog- interrogating it now because it, is a, it was a thing that in the late 50s, early 60s was a real movie trope. This is the James Bond trope that, a, that an unwilling girl if she's grabbed roughly by the shoulders and given a kiss against her will halfway through the kiss, she'll melt like butter in the sun. And after that, she's devoted to you forever. And where that idea, cause that's not an idea that's, that's necessarily in movies from the thirties and forties that, that there would, that a character could be that a male character could just grab and take like that. Right, he'd have to be like introduced to her by her uncle first. Yeah, right. I mean, there are movies, there are a lot of movies from the 30s and 40s where the two leads never kiss. They don't kiss at all. 
as a child of the 80s, like a convincing kiss was not possible in the films that I saw. It was always like standoffish right. and, and tension filled. Yeah, right. That's true also in movies before this time. When did that turn? Well, I did. That's something. When could you stop kissing someone and, and turning them? <laughs> <laughs> that's something that, because I think a lot of the people that are, a, a lot of the men that, um, that ended up being the problematic men of our time, they are men who came up during this time who watched these movies mm. and developed a sense of entitlement from precisely this culture. Uh, and, not, and I don't mean the mouse that roared culture. That but, is a real video game influence violence yeah. kind of kind of case you're making there, John. <laughs> but you know the the the, the iconic scene uh, where James Bond um, in uh, in the first James Bond movie right grabs uh, grabs the antagonistic female lead and throws her in a hay pile. Um, you you see that resonate through this generation of guys that were that were in the 50s watching movies. It's not my fault, baby. I watched a lot of Peter Sellers hey, movies. you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this was supposed to work. I was supposed to be able to just grab you and throw you down and halfway through the kiss, am I right? What happened? It's like a kinky fantasy for some people, for sure. And I wonder... It's power play, right? Is it being presented as that, like, th like this is a this is a movie, so it's fantastical in that way, or, or did it like did people actually operate in that way? I think people operated in that way. The thing that I couldn't quite understand within the world of the movie was the hero of our story is regarded by everyone in Fenwick as a boob, um, an incompetent. And he's shown right. to be incompetent at the beginning of the film. He's a bad. He's bad at archery. Um, but then, as soon as they kind of arrive in New York, right? And he suffers from seasickness, and that's played for laughs. As soon as they arrive in New York, Tully actually is fairly capable, and he right. he understands the situation, and he strategizes a plan that's actually a pretty good plan. Yeah. And later on, when he returns and he's created this international incident, uh, like also Peter Sellers as Rupert Mountjoy, the the prime minister, he continues to call Tully a, a dope and says he got us into this incident, you know, as a dope. But this is exactly what Tully had planned. And by the end of the film, like Tully is suave enough to... Like all, all of the idea that Tully is an incompetent drains out of the movie three quarters of the way through. And I don't know why it, I don't think yeah. it, it, it felt almost like they just kind of, they started off with that as a premise and then they just abandoned it halfway through. Um, <laughs> but like Tully does not need to romance Gene Seberg in this movie. It's not, it doesn't really add anything to the film except for a kind of, it gives it a happy, happily ever after ending. That's, but it had nothing to do with the geopolitical satire, and I don't think there's enough in it to have it be there to make this a sophisticated sex comedy, either. Right? She's she's an interesting character, the protective daughter of the physicist who's a modern American gal. But her falling in love with Tully doesn't it doesn't say anything. 
there's a math to how these characters are set up that equal something like, I think the Helen character would end up being an outlier in her intelligence. Helen she, being the Gene Seberg character. She's the smartest character in the film, but I think you pull back on her intelligence by having her fall for for Tully. And I think it would stick out too much if she didn't. Like you got to rein her in. I think uh-huh. I think she would be uh, she would be too strange in a strange land if she were because she's smarter than her dad, and he's a physicist. Right, right but she's not funny, right? She's yeah. she's shrill. Yeah, and so right, you couldn't because you could have made her more central to the humor of the movie. Right, but I guess she's competing against Peter Sellers, and like you say, in order to probably her instinct as an actor, especially as early in her career and as young as she was, she didn't have the in, in instinct or wasn't being directed to play quiet. Yeah. Uh, and quiet and humorous. And instead she, she played big and brash. This movie puts the football in nuclear football. <laughs> what do you guys think about the Q bomb? The one football joke is actually a rugby joke. Right. The one where but he it gets- does go for a spiral at one point. <laughs> When they're horsing around with it in the hay field at the end, it uh, it goes for at least one spiral throw. It, it is a very upsetting sound anytime anyone <laughs> yeah. touches it. You know, do you think you ought to hold this for a while after all that your father's? Oh, no, not me. I'm only a girl. The idea that there is clockwork that might be, like, triggering thermonuclear events is really, is really scary. It sounds like the clock radio in the worst hotel you've ever stayed in. <laughs> <laughs> is this a culture that is, like, kind of making a thermonuclear weapon silly because that's the only way to cope with the existence of that kind of thing? The idea that there was a... Uh, that nuclear weapons were increasing in size and strength and um right about this same period the neutron bomb debuted in the world of of geopolitics so we had the atom bomb and then the neutron Is that bomb what people are talking about when they talk about the end bomb yeah <laughs> but the neutron bomb was this bomb the way the neutron bomb was sold or the way the way it filtered down to me as a kid was that it was a more powerful bomb that only killed people. It didn't destroy buildings and towns. Whoa. So you could drop the neutron bomb and then come in and the cities would still be there. And That's you what could, you want. The, the hot water would still work. Yeah. Now, this isn't exactly how a neutron bomb would work, but it, but it was less about- You'd have water problems. You, there'd be, you know, your hot water, you'd have to get a plumber right. in there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but this this idea that that we were going to keep building bombs that got more and more powerful and had more and more crazy new science until we arrived at a doomsday bomb, the world killer. Yeah, the world killer. And so that was a that was playing on an anxiety, a contemporary anxiety. It's upsettingly rustic looking. <laughs> Also, like the fact that it's made out of brass and has like big yeah. knobs on it. It it's is very steampunk. steampunky. Yeah. yeah. This film does say something interesting about uh, what the possession of such a device would do for a previously ignored country, though. America surrenders to Fenwick at the end. Fenwick ends up being the global peacekeeper because in their responsible handling of the doomsday device... 
they kind of set the set the tone. I mean, this is a very familiar concept. You want to join the League of Nations with such a weapon. Like you want to be you want a seat at the table. You want to join the mutually assured destruction club. <laughs> and they do. I would never want to join a club that would have someone like me as a member. <laughs> Another weird thing, and I'm sorry to just keep dropping weird things into this, but in 1961, there was a, a, a global group called the, or a global idea, and it, it was a group called the Non-Aligned Countries. There was something, it was called the Non-Aligned Movement, and it was all the countries of the world that didn't want to take sides in the Cold War decided they were going to form form a block. So like, Yugoslavia and India and Egypt and countries in Africa, Ghana, so forth. They were like, we're, we aren't going to be pawns in your, in your cold war game. And if we, it's basically like a union argument. If we all band together, all these little nations can have a collective power. You're gonna have to work harder than that to get me to join your side. Said Ghana. (laughs) So lame. So awful. What are you, me? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the problem with the non-aligned movement uh, was just that it was it was extremely hard for Yugoslavia and Egypt to really like (laughs) form a a competing global movement. Uh, And you know the United States and and the USSR made you know went to Egypt and said like really. How would you like it if we gave you 1,000 tanks? This movie ends on like such a positive, hopeful note, like which is so distinct from Strangelove. Like, was the world a more pessimistic place by the time Strangelove happened, or or is this just a like a less sophisticated take on mutually assured destruction? Well, the thing that happened in between this movie and Strangelove is the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we're pre-missile crisis here. We're pre-JFK. This is Eisenhower. But this is is peak paranoia too, right? This is, the U.S. was actually a a hugely stabilizing influence in the world, but we thought the Russians were beating us at every turn. I love the reference in the film where like the Russians have had the Q-bomb for a decade. (laughs) 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 See, hilarious, right? I mean, that actually is pretty funny. (laughs) That was great. Uh, But like Sputnik was 57. Yeah. And this, there's a ton of Sputnik stuff in this movie. Like all the, all the New Yorkers thinking they've seen aliens because like, you know, long bowmen from the 1600s are walking around Central Park. Right. That's a weird, that's a weird thing, right? The popularity or the, like the, the, the crazy feeling that like UFOs were coming. <laughs> Those were the two most New Yorky people we've ever seen, right? The guys working in that, in that truck above ground. Yeah. I'm so surprised they weren't in a boot camp. <laughs> I mean, they were so like, Hey, I'm working over here. Wow. There's aliens in Central Park. And have fun while you live. The first modern UFO sighting was in 1947. And it was here in Washington State. When I say here, I'm talking to Adam. Right. Ben, you're clearly somewhere else. You're in a rump state of California. <laughs> I'm on a different planet. But so really only only 10 years before this movie, um, the idea that there were flying saucers visiting 
America. And then the 50s were a time when people were seeing flying saucers everywhere. So that was that felt really current. But you know, those guys, the guys with the hard hats that were making everybody go underground, those were civil defense people. My dad was actually a member of the civil defense. Is that like the post-war Volkssturm? Uh, <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was a, a group... Um, it was a group of civilians that were meant to sort of, uh, in the event of a nuclear war, you would reach in your desk drawer and pull out your little armband and your tin pot helmet. It's surprising that armbands were a sellable item oh, at yeah. this point They're in history. Still very popular. <laughs> the The armband had a, had a triangle inside of a circle. So it was also Alcoholics Anonymous adjacent. Uh, <laughs> it was a little Masonic. Yeah. But civil defense people would like take to the streets and they all had a job that they yeah. that they trained for. But I think it was a place where you would get a lot of kind of officious local guys that were like, hey, buddy, you can't walk over there. Yeah. The guy in high yeah. school who got in fights all the time but couldn't make it as a cop. Right. Would, yeah. uh, would be civil defense guy. He found his scrap of authority to abuse. Right. <laughs> Real Scorsese ending to this film, right? With the little mouse. Mm -hmm. Not unlike the rat, the end of that one Scorsese film, the terrible one. The great one. The Departed. We're never going to agree on The Departed. <laughs> you and Ben, you and ben are, are on either sides of The Departed? Yeah. Adam just doesn't get the joke. Does this come up in your other show? No. This is just a personal thing you guys have. Yeah. I'm happy that Ben likes it, though. I'm not going to yuck his yum. <laughs> But I wonder if Scorsese lifted that. It's very specific. I mean, that's the kind of reference that Scorsese likes to make, right? Yeah, yeah. Grab a little bit. Is it a joke about corruption in this movie, though? Or is the joke that, like, the mouse was what was making the bomb not work, and that when it comes out, the implication is that now the bomb is, is functional? Ooh. I like that paper a lot. Scary. Good paper. I think that is true. Yeah. I thought the I thought for sure the mouse would have been killed during the uh, during the roughhousing with the bomb. Well, who knows what kind of little nest the mouse had made? There's in all there. that uh, centripetal force of the spiraling bomb. The mouse is inside. <laughs> mouse can survive yeah. a lot. Yeah, they're a lot bouncier than we are. So the mouse, the titular mouse or tit mouse, mm. <laughs> if you will, is um is Fenwick, right? Fenwick is the mouse. Oh man, you're making you're writing a whole other paper. Yeah, Fenwick is the mouse. Fenwick is the mouse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And who's the departed? <laughs> We're gonna have to adjudicate that part in a Suffolk County courthouse. <laughs> Much like we adjudicate the quality of a film, come review time. We do do that, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of the few films of this tone that we get to do on Friendly Fire. A blessed 87 minutes also. Yeah. Like really, really appreciated a nice, a nice quick jaunt through this one. It's a nice comedy lozenge mm. inserted here into this Friendly Fire project. I sure did appreciate that. Uh, but when it comes review time, it is also time to decide how we review the film. And the only way to do that that I can see is choosing an object in the film and assigning a rating from between one and five of those things. One part of this film that we did not discuss 
was my favorite part of the film. About three quarters of the way through, the story is starting to wind down. We're starting to figure out how things are going to end, but you don't feel safe. And the reason you don't is because we cut to the footage of a nuclear bomb exploding in the desert (laughs) and a narrator chiming in to say, hey, just letting you know that we're not out of the woods yet. And not only are we not out of the the narrative woods in this film, you, the viewer, uh, can expect this at any point in time. (laughs) And that is really the seriousness inside the absurd. It has never not been there in this film. Whether or not you know about this nuclear football that the that the physicist is creating, there are devices of this kind sprinkled globally. And this this 10 seconds of this film reminds you. It's like, hey, get your laughs in, but seriously, as soon as you leave, uh, the problem remains. And this is a thing that tonally Dr. Strangelove doubles down on later on, but like... The absurdity of at any moment we're subject to the decisions that idiots make. Many of the people in power are dumb. Even this dumb. Even Tully Bascom dumb. (laughs) And those consequences could kill us all at any moment. And meanwhile, like, you and me and Ben are, like, dancing in a subway stop underground, like completely oblivious to the idea that all of this is happening around us that to me is like when you can do that inside like when you can make an absurdist statement and also a real honest devastating critique of modern times like there's that kernel in this film and it's only 15 seconds and you really it's easy to forget by the time the credits roll and we see the mouse slink away out of the bomb like oh that was fun and funny it's the only thing like it in the film if this film doesn't have that moment it's not as good Mm, yeah and so from one to five pieces of bomb footage will be the scale (laughs) for the mouse that roared i think for all the reasons stated like this is This is great fun. Peter Sellers' films are fun, and I'm old enough to be able to say that. (laughs) Couldn't say that maybe even 10 years ago. But I'm a Peter Sellers fan, and he is such a joy to watch in this film. This is also the rare war film, I think, that really examines the importance of perception and how perception plays a part in either the run-up to a war or its aftermath. Like this idea of playing on the perception of America as a as a bomb thrower and then repairer, so interesting to me. This has been present in every war film we've seen, but totally, like it's never been given voice at all. But it really is a part of every war this country's ever fought. And I don't know why it took a Peter Sellers movie to like really think about that, but it did. And... Uh, I like the movie a lot. I'm going to give it uh, four pieces of of bomb footage. I think uh, I think it should be seen, especially if you're someone who doesn't watch a lot of the war films that we review because of their violence or whatever. Like this is a fun one to put on. Put it on and enjoy yeah. it for 90 minutes and and get weird. It's a weird movie. There's room for that on Friendly Fire. Yeah, I'm glad there is. I really loved it as a thing that I didn't know existed and especially in the context of strange love also existing like 
and and I read that Peter Sellers was in a play, I think on the West End at the same time as this was in production and he was like literally like finishing his day of shooting and being chauffeured into London so that he could pr- perform on stage in a play that was also like a nuclear farce like this. So just a weird theme to keep popping up in a in a career and you know I mean actors some actors get to choose their work and I'm sure Peter Sellers is among those but early in his career this was already a major theme that he was uh, grappling with as a professional how do you hold all that in your head like you're performing one thing and then you're being shuttled across town to do another thing like is there any wonder the guy had problems <laughs> like and and like you know when they're on location like he's leaving he's walking off stage getting in the car and sleeping in the car on the way across the uk to the you know wherever they're shooting yeah. on location that day you know and uh he doesn't he doesn't look exhausted he's like he is totally he's totally at, like the most energetic part of the film right and he's in every scene right so yeah sometimes twice in every scene yeah, I think it's a I think it's a four bomb clip film. Yeah, I feel like all those things are true, but um, but it's so located in its time and space. And honestly, I can't tell how many of the references in this movie, how many subtle references none of us got, because it was ripped from the headlines of its time. I mean, we got we got a lot of the self evident ones, but little mannerisms that people had uh, that maybe were satirizing congressmen of the 50s you know like yeah wasn't there a calvin coolidge joke there a calvin coolidge joke i i really wonder like if you're a if you're a person younger even than a ben harrison if there is anything for you in this film like reference wise i think we all as collectors of this kind of trivia like it works for us in a way that it might not if you're in your 20s or yeah or if you're just not um either not interested i mean you i think you could be 40 years old and not get any of these references yeah but also yeah if you're dumb if you're a dumb (laughs) right uh i I read that the prime minister character was a parody of benjamin disraeli yeah right a prime minister the the only jewish born prime minister that the uk has ever had and I was reading about that, and I was like, what? Yeah. He's a 19th century... <laughs> Talk about a coincidence of being named Disraeli. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and, and Disraeli famously immortalized in the uh, album Disraeli Gears, uh, which was a, a Cream album from 1967. <clears throat> but, uh, but no, like... Exactly. For the audience to get a, uh, like a Disraeli parody, I think that probably that would have gone over a lot of the heads of people in the 50s, but that is a Peter Sellers. That's a joke that he's bringing to the table. Um, And that, you know, it's the type of thing that fleshes out a film, but we have to look at the movie as a, as an artifact and say, how does it stand? How does it, how does it stand up? We we've seen movies from this era that that really still hold up as great films where you don't have to bring a ton of of uh suitcases in to watch it you don't need a dictionary and you don't need a uh 50s encyclopedia and so i think that this is a movie you should watch if you're interested in the in 
putting together a broad context of of the time and of I think it's a great companion piece to Strange Love. I think it's a great movie to watch if you're doing a deep dive on Cold War. But as a as a like comedy, this is the kind of movie that I would rent at the VHS store and bring to a party of teenagers when I was a teenager <laughs> and say, oh, you guys are going to love it. It's a Peter Sellers movie about a Cold War. <laughs> this is why you had to change schools. Yeah, lot, right? right. And so then I'd put it in and, <laughs> you know, and everybody else was just, you know, they were just looking for like um, weird science or whatever. They just wanted, they just wanted something to eat popcorn and make out to. And then, I, you know, I put this on and then I'd sit crisscross applesauce in front of the TV, my nose three inches away while everybody behind me was just like, this sucks. This movie's not funny. <laughs> Stupid. And that was in the 80s. Think about it now. Think about being the dork that brings this to a party now. Or to a Netflix and chill, right? Hey, <laughs> let's just pull up my laptop and watch this great. No. Mr. Softy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've really found the one if the person you're bringing this over to is into it. Yeah, right? If you're like, oh my Hold God. Hold on to them. If you're like, that's a Disraeli reference. Hold on to them, like, but also get consent before kissing. <laughs> right. Uh, don't just don't just sellers the kiss. Right. Find you yeah. somebody who looks at you like I look at this movie. And then maybe once you've got kind of some established relationship, you could negotiate some play that involves this kind of kiss. But, you know, it's always with consent and, and, you know. And respect. Ground rules. Thank you. I give this movie three and a half uh, nuclear explosion clips. I think that's super fair. It's just a little too out there in some pretty particular ways. In some ways that would turn some people off. Yeah, it just it, it, it's a, it's the ultimate question of like, does this hold up? And when we watched Mash, what you know, a, a big part of what didn't hold up about Mash was that the vulgarity was a was a, a kind that we have since rejected. Mm-hmm. And there's not that kind of vulgarity in this movie that makes it makes it a part of an ugly. It's not. A, it doesn't paint an ugly picture. Right. But the does it hold up? question of can you make a movie that's so located in the in the anxieties of 1958 that those anxieties translate to now um and i think this movie was just a little too specific who specifically is your guy ben i've gone back and forth on this but i think my guy is the uh the grand duchess (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we talked about it a little bit. Just the, uh, just the like, super chill, even keeled. Like we'll we'll solve this problem. This too shall pass. Uh, was very aspirational to me. I, I dug her vibe. Mm. Yeah, nice. She's great. Also, I could see you wearing some of those outfits, Ben. You like a headdress. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Some of my tiaras are uh, are very similar to hers. So. My guy is the sergeant. He's Will Buckley. He's always the guy who's like on Tully's shoulder. There's something about his performance that, uh, and I mean this as a compliment, I could not draw him from memory. I think this is such as the Peter Sellers effect that he's just one of those people that is lost standing right next to him. And 
And yet he's doing fun and funny shit. Like he's often reacting to him in a way that amuses me. But he also does that. He has that moment when they're in New York and uh, Telly can't figure out what's making the squeaking sound. There's a moment when Sergeant Buckley is super amused by the idea that Tully's armor has rusted. It's one of the few parts of the film where Tully is being made fun of to his face by yeah. a by a compatriot or a coworker, and it's just fun. Like it's not mean. It's like, isn't that funny? Right. Your armor's squeaking. Yeah. <laughs> and then they and then like the scene ends with them walking out of frame. It's just such a nice, like there's so many moments in this film that are like build up to the joke and then we walk out of frame and that's one of them but buckley himself as a character is such a around the scene guy in it but not standing out that's the that's the promise of an adam pranica on your podcast <clears throat> well you know adam another reason that you probably uh you probably chose him is and this may have been subconscious but he was the first doctor who right yeah, I am not a I'm not a who person. But no, but I did see that he's got a, a film resume like a hundred things long. You are on a Star Trek podcast though, which means that you're part of the Doctor Who cinematic universe. I renounce the Doctor <laughs> Who cinematic universe. It is not for me. Whoa, you got that is dangerous, dude. Yeah, talk about sending letters. That could be a career limiting move. I've tried to watch Doctor Who like in in different parts, like from the different decades and I just can't find I can't find my toehold into that series have you ever watched iteration one of Doctor Who I've watched the pilot episode of Doctor Who wow alright it's not for me and that's fine it's fine it's fine you're alright it's like The Departed isn't for me it's fine anybody wants to write letters to Adam about Doctor Who and The Departed just address them to gofuckyourself at gmail.com that's it (laughs) Whoever owns that email address has got to be getting some amazing <laughs> shit. Uh, my guy is the BBC announcer who comes on just briefly <laughs> he's great. laying out the scene. Yeah. And he's so just like, you know, that you could play that role as really deadpan in a sort of Monty Python way of like, and now the news where mm-hmm. it's where it's clear that it's being done for laughs. But he doesn't he doesn't do that even. It's done it's done straight. Yeah. Uh and in doing it straight and appearing again just like uh, there's nothing else like it in the movie. It's just like the atom bomb footage. We just get cut to BBC announcer right to fill in a little a little gap in the plot. And that kind of comedy is so endearing to me, like the comedy of the, the confidence of the wrong. Right. Right. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> so great. There's there's that whole there's that whole subtext in the movie about about the the way rumors spread and the fact that um that all of a sudden, you know, people in the state department are hearing stories that that New York is starting to go crazy that the that UFOs are landing in Central Park. We don't ever we don't ever trace the thread of that how it how it ends up sort of playing out. And just the fact that the film would would want and need 30 seconds of a BBC announcer you know <laughs> laying out the the news of the day. Uh I really liked it. I liked him. Super sceney movie, right? Like that it had a very like Kentucky fried movie kind of structure. Hmm. Yeah, or like Zucker Brothers. Yeah. 
there, there were a lot like any anytime they had a joke idea that was like oh yeah we'll just build a little set and have this one joke yeah right? they totally did it right well we're totally doing another film after this which film is it gonna be only the 120 die can tell us. Here we are. We have the die, the famous 120-sided die. When the show's over, we'll auction it off for $38. Well, it's an auction, so we don't know how much it's going to go for. It's going to go for 38 <laughs> I watched a video on a science website about the development of the 120-sided die, and multiple times in in this video, the creators of it, like a couple of mathematicians that made this thing, say there is no use for this thing. It is useless. Wow. And I think our show stands athwart that assertion. We stand astride it. <laughs> okay, here we, we go. We poop into its sink. Here we go. Forty-five. 45 is a World War II movie set in the Pacific. It's a 1945 John Ford film called They Were Expendable. Well, what mean expendable? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I beat you! Uh, like <laughs> Get your drops ready, Rob. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Fire them up. Uh, that will be next week. I'm excited about this. And, uh, a World War II movie st- directed by John Ford, starring yeah. John Wayne? Robert Montgomery? Oh, Damn. Robert Montgomery. This is right in the very, very beating heart of Friendly Fire. Yeah. That's a sweet yeah. spot. 1945 December is a, uh, a pretty interesting time to release a war film. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have to check all of that out. Uh, that will be next week on Friendly Fire. We'll leave it with Rob's from here. For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.